Ned Ryerson, uh, the name may be unfamiliar, but everyone who has seen the classic movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray will remember Ned as the insurance salesman who Murray keeps meeting every morning. Um, as a friend of mine put it, like, here comes Ned, the person you dread to see who will use any pretext of friendship that he has with you as a way to try and, you know, sell you something, sell you in this case, sell you insurance. And so day after day in Groundhog Day, uh, Bill Murray has to figure out like how he circumvents this nuisance. Um, he tries to be polite at first. He, he tries to, you know, politely brush Ned off. He tries to ignore him. Um, and it gets worse and worse. It, near the, um, you know, the climax of the movie where when the, the, the moment when he is, um, just feels like life is not worth living, he's at the height of his despair, Ned walks up to him, and I think before Ned can virtually get a word out of his mouth, Bill Murray just punches him in the face and, and walks away. But if you remember, by the end, the, the nicer, kinder version of Bill Murray ends up uh, when Ned approaches him, he's like, I'll take it all, Ned. I'll buy, I'll buy everything that you're selling. Well, our passage today speaks about a Christian's responsibility to bear witness to Jesus. And um, I think too often in the church, that has been taken to mean like something to be some version of Ned Ryerson, that, that we're supposed to turn all of our relationships into opportunities to pitch people on Jesus. And the problem with that is it betrays the law of love because none of us, like nobody wants to be pitched to. Um, nobody wants to to be sold something, especially under the pretense of free friendship. What happens is we end up treating people in a way that we never would want to be treated, but we do it because we feel like maybe such guilt that oh, I haven't talked to other people about my faith. Um, we build up like intense evangelism, guilt, and um, and so we ended up like using people as a means to an end, all because it's for a cause that, that matters. And I don't know about you, but I can think about times in my life where I just cringe because um, I did that. I, I, I wanted people to um, follow Jesus, to know Jesus, to experience the life that Jesus has given me. And, and I have like tried to persuade them um, when I had little to no relationship with them. And I, I conjured up just like false and fabricated conversations that just I didn't want to be in ultimately, and they didn't want to be in. And, and I wish I could take back those moments. And I think maybe I'm not the only one in this room that has either um, been on the side of pitching or been on the receiving side of pitching. There is a better way. And that way uh, comes to us in the book of Acts. Let me read to us from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll come back to John 18 a little later in the sermon. Uh, but here we have um, the words of Luke in my former book, Theophilus. We think that this guy, Theophilus, he shows up nowhere else in the Bible except at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Um, probably a Roman official who had sponsored Luke, um, commissioned Luke to write the Gospel of Luke in this book. In my former book, that is the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles. He had chosen apostles were the, the group of 12 people who were his, his choice men who spent um, all of the three years of his ministry with them. Uh, that is, after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to those apostles and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
from the dead. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father is set by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then verse 9, I'll probably preach on the verses 9 through 11 um, in a couple months uh, on the ascension, the day that the church normally celebrates ascension. But after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. These are angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And that is the word of the Lord for us. Let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, You do use people like us, insignificant that we are, to bear witness to Jesus. And yet, uh, many times we have had a tortured relationship with that in in our past. And so we pray that you would be pleased to like speak to us today and help us to discover a better way that we might share um, the great gift of life and grace that you have made manifest to us, that we could share it um, in an intelligible and a, in a, and just a kind way, um, not as a means to an end, but out of love with the neighbors that you have surrounded us. And we pray this again in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a couple words of background on Acts. Acts is, is a two-volume work. Luke is the first book. Acts is the second book. They were written by the namesake Luke, who was a physician and traveling co-worker with another very important figure in early Christianity, the Apostle Paul. And the traditional name of the book is, the lengthened version is The Acts of the Apostles. But actually, that book is misnamed. Um, it, it really shouldn't be The Acts of the Apostles. Even though the apostles show up in nearly every one of the book's stories, in verse 1, Luke gives us a clue as to the unifying theme of the book. And this is important. Like, it's the very first words he says. And, and this is the unifying, uh, unifying theme. In my previous volume, I wrote about the things that Jesus began, did you catch that? Began to do and teach. If you think about that, well, I thought that Luke's gospel was almost like nearly everything that Jesus did and taught. And Luke's trying to tell us, no, it's actually only the beginning, that this second volume is is what Jesus continued to do and to teach. And yet he's up in heaven. He's not on earth. But of course, he is on earth in a sense through his people. And so the name of the book, as I said, it's misnamed. It shouldn't be the the Acts of the Apostles. It really ought to be named the Continuing Acts of Jesus by his Spirit through his people here on earth. Um, And that's a, a a really cool idea because it means that like his people, his followers, even today over this whole globe are continuing to live out this story. Um, 
the story of bearing witness to Jesus. Now, that word witnessing, I don't know if you've been in church circles for a while, it has a kind of creepy connotations, like, let's go witnessing, or if you know what I mean, it just, it, it makes my skin crawl a little bit. Instead of thinking of it, if you have those associations in that way, I mean, think of it simply as, what does a witness do in a court of law? A witness in a court of law merely uh, testifies to what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have experienced. Like They testify based upon their own personal experience. And in the same way, the apostles, that was their job, to bear witness, to accurately testify to what they had experienced with Jesus, namely of him seeing him die on the cross and then three days later rise from the dead. Um, they were to testify from their personal experience about hearing him teach and what he said and he, watching him heal people and, you know, all kinds of things, working miracles. So those original apostles served as unique witnesses, we might say. They witnessed to Jesus in a way um, that you and I maybe can't exactly. But there is a way for us, too, to bear witness, and um, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Notice the question they ask in verse 6. They usually catch a lot of flack about this question from, um, from people later on. They gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you, going, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of, to Israel? It sounds almost like a, a, a tribal proclamation, like, hey, when are, when are you going to take care of Israel? There's a nationalism, a tribalism, maybe uh, in those words. I, I don't know, though. I mean, given all that was found in the Old Testament, I, I think it was... It was at least reasonable for them to assume that like Jesus' next step would be he's risen from the dead, he's alive, he's full of glory, he's shown to be the king. He's going to go into the city of Jerusalem and put things to right. He's going to enter into the temple. He's going to purify the temple. He's going to purify the people. He's going to, you know, assume the throne of of Israel and judge the nations and do all the, these different things that were somewhat predicted in the Old Testament. They, they were kind of envisioning like, oh, so this is going to be King David 2.0, but infinitely better. And to which he says, guys, it's not for you to know how all that's going to shake out. But what you need to know is this. I will send my spirit on you and you are going to go out into the rest of the world. That was a step that they were reluctant to take. And down throughout the ages in church history, it's a step that I think like all of the church is reluctant to take, to, to go out into the world and to invite our friends to know, uh, to try and persuade our neighbors to know and discover Jesus Christ. And, and that is especially difficult today, right? Um, just given... Just given the cultural moment that we are in and, and how suspicious we are of, of all truth claims and how suspicious we are of each other, even. Like, how, how can I trust you to, to tell me something that is true or, or deeply suspicious? So uh, what I wanted to do is talk about briefly two reasons why we may be reluctant to bear witness and then uh, a couple of ideas on maybe how to overcome that. So the first reason I think we're especially reluctant to step out is, is just the lack of social trust. I don't know if you've thought about this concept before, but social trust is simply this. The generalized faith you have in the people of your community. 
Um, it, it's, the, it's the confidence that other people will do what, what they ought to do most of the time. To put it simply, like if we were talking about a restaurant, you walk into a restaurant and you expect the proprietor to serve you untainted food, and the proprietor expects that you're not going to skip out and avoid the bill, right? Um, it just it begins with the assumption that we live interdependent, interconnected lives, that we share many of the same values, many of the moral obligations, and that we like we will together pursue the common good. Well, what's the problem with that? We don't have any social trust anymore. I got an email this morning from an author. It was just like a newsletter, but he was putting, um, bringing attention to something that we're all probably remarkably aware of. Um, and he was showing the results of a recent study of um, Republicans' views of Democrats and Democrats' views of Republicans in the United States. And so each party, each group was given six words to describe the, the others. So, um, uh, sorry, eight words. Reasonable, honest, caring, and humble were the four positive characteristics. Brainwashed, hateful, racist, or arrogant were the four negative um, characterizations. And so what would you expect, like, say, a Republican's view of, um, of Democrats were, were? Well, of those four positives, like, each one of them, I think the highest, the highest number that it, it got was, like, 6%. Um, or, you know, and then of those four negatives, like the, the, the it was like 80 percent, 95, 90 percent. Right. I'm not telling you anything. And then vice versa. It was the same, you know, Democrats view of Republicans. And I'm not telling you anything you, you don't already know. But we're we're at a moment where where people just they have such a low regard for each other. Like it's a very tribal moment that we are living um, right now. And I wonder if one of the reasons why people in Phoenix, note, people in Phoenix, they don't know their neighbors. <laughs> like, and there's really not even that much of a desire in Phoenix to know your neighbors. I think one of the reasons why is, is because we are becoming a nation with such low social trust. The idea that, that I would even want to know somebody, especially if they're like of the other political persuasion, um, it's not it's not a goal that we would pursue because there is no social trust. But where there is no trust, you know, you can't really share things uh, of import, can you? How do we overcome it? I would say we overcome it. The only way to overcome it, it may sound too cliche for you, but like, the only way to overcome it is love. Verse 8, it, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And I believe that the power of the Spirit is the power to love. I'm convinced the only way that you ever overcome low social trust in a society is, is by love. And I love this definition that an important theologian centuries ago gave to the word of love. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said that he just defined love as willing the good of the other. Um, actively willing and pursuing the good of the people that surround me. Like you, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you can do like almost a little just tic-tac-toe map of where you live. Put your house in the center of it. Like, okay, there's somebody who lives across the street from you. There's someone to the right of the tic-tac-toe map uh, across, across. There's two people to the side of you. Um, Most people, they don't know hardly anybody in in their tic-tac-toe. But 
but to will the good of those people in your, in your squares, like, that is, that is love. Um, and so actively willing and pursuing the good of the people that surround me where I live, where I work, where, here's my desk, here's where I sit, here's where the people around me sit, um, the places that I frequent, my coffee shop, my gym, my, my kids' school, like just beginning to think about life as willing the good of another human being. You know, love is so closely connected to what we might call the art of neighboring. Um, the art of neighboring is a, is a lost art largely today. I mean, to, to be a neighbor, first of all, you, you kind of have to like people. <laughs> you have to get to the point where you like them, and you have to take notice of people. It's really easy not to take notice of people today. You have to actually do stuff with people. <laughs> and you have to cultivate a spirit of curiosity where you dig and you're genuinely interested in the stories and the lives of other people. And then, you know, you try to remember details and follow up. When I look at the art of neighboring, um, like my New Year's resolution probably needs to just focus right here. I mean, sure, I would love to drop a few more pounds, but I'm not not that, doing too bad with that. I'd love to run more. I'd love to lift more. I'd love to show more self-control. But, I mean, really, I, I would just love to be better at the art of neighboring. Um, I mean, for many of us, that doesn't come naturally. And for all of us, we know that takes hard work. But it is the Spirit of Christ that is the Spirit of love that empowers us to step out and do that hard work of, of neighboring. And I tell you, love makes all the difference. Just like in a court of law, if the jury does not trust the person who's in that witness stand, um, you know, making this or that proclamation about what they saw, if they don't trust the person on the witness stand, it doesn't matter what they say. And love is maybe the only way to build trust in a a low social trust world. Changing gears, as I mentioned already, the church has always been reluctant to leave the cozy confines of her existence and to step out into the world. I heard a great way to consider this. Um, It was given, again, from another pastor friend. He told the story, a true story, of a cruise ship that was sailing along um, relatively near the site of an airline crash. And the ship was um, asked by uh, the authorities, the Coast Guard, I don't know whom, to change course and head towards the debris field to search for survivors. And so they did so, and unfortunately, they didn't find any survivors. You know, a little surprise, because that, you know, rarely happens in a crash in water. But he said, imagine, imagine being on that cruise ship when you hear over the intercom, like the words, we're going to divert, you know, attention, all passengers, we're going to divert from our cruise to go to this debris field to see if we can be of some help. It's a cruise ship. I mean, everybody's inundated with food and booze and amusement and each other, like all of the self-indulgence that a cruise ship entails. Imagine, like, the change in mindset that would be necessary to go from, like, sailing to the Bahamas to um, now we're going to be a search and rescue mission to help people in need. You know, I think... (laughs) Nice touch, John. Yeah, nice. Um, I think churches tend to become more cruise ship-like, you know, the longer they are around. And part of that, part of that is just, part of that is good and necessary. Because, I mean, in order for a church to be healthy, it has to create a community where people 
want to be with each other and they're taking care of each other's needs and like we're looking out for one another. You're, you know, you have to, in order to do that, you have to turn towards each other to, to, to form a, a tight-knit group. But the danger always in turning towards each other is you turn your back on everyone else. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, a famous author, he talked about how, how humans tend to create inner rings where we all turn to one another and we like block out the outside and we share, we discover a shared language that we can all talk in. Sometimes maybe it's even like a, 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 a secret code language or there's a secret handshake. There's all these things you have to know and do in order to be part of that inner ring. And then you know, it functions as a click, and it's very, very hard to break into an inner ring. And, you know, churches can do that. The, the larger they become, the more established they become, the more um, amenities that they have. <laughs> they, we've got this great kids ministry, and we've got these community groups, and we've got all this, but what can happen is we become cliquish. Um, the community group doesn't have room for anyone else. We use insider talk, um, we, we're not intelligible. Um, we're not sensitive to outsiders, so we start talking about our politics or sharing things that are insensitive to others. It just creates a thick barrier where people on the inside are enjoying themselves a lot, and that's good, but people on the outside you know, can't break in. Am I describing something that anybody else has experienced before in the life of a church? I think one good thing about having a church startup is... Um, it's a bad thing and a good thing. We don't have many amenities. <laughs> we don't have these great programs or these these great things. You know, we, we got we got very very little. But what we hope to be is a community that um, is close, just but simply not cliquish, that and certainly not self indulgent. Certainly not like living the country club cruise ship life, but living counterculturally, um, walking to a different beat. So we're reluctant because of a lack of um, social trust. I think it can be overcome by love. In fact, that's the only thing that can overcome it. Number two, a second reason we're so reluctant to bear witness is we do feel like insufficient witnesses. And we are insufficient witnesses on so many levels. Um, I only have time to cover two of these, but um, one would be this. I'm really not sure that Jesus has changed my life for the better. That is a probably an admission that few of us would have the courage to make with other people, and yet that, that can be in the back of our minds quite frequently. Um, Fiona read a minute ago from the story of John 18, where Peter denies Jesus three times famously. Very interesting uh, fact that I discovered when I was studying that in the past is um, roosters and weather vanes. Did you know that they started to put weather vanes on the top of churches, you know, back in, uh, I don't know, like the 1400s or so, because the top of the church was the highest point in the city, and so you could see up there where the wind was blowing the best. But before there were weather vanes on tops of churches, there were actually roosters, Apparently, in the Middle Ages, it was the practice to put a rooster up on the church to, to remind the Christians of the rooster that crowed three times when Peter denied 
Jesus. Now, eventually, the weather vane and the rooster were combined, and so that's how you get this this on the top of, that's a church in France. And um, But it's fascinating that you would be able to sit, stand in the middle of the town square and look up and have this picture of reminding you that, like, you need to bear witness. You need to have courage. You need to, you need to, you know, have the courage to speak about your Lord. Now, the reason I share this story is it does require courage sometimes. It really does. Um, we're afraid that we're going to lose maybe a friendship if we, if we're, we say too much about our faith. We're afraid. We're afraid of so many different things. But, you know, a real friendship is a friendship where we share the, the things that matter most to our hearts. And if you're in a friendship and you're, you're unable to talk about the things that matter most to you, then, you know, it may not be that deep of a friendship to begin with. But the second reason, the main reason I share the story of Peter is, you know, most Christians, if you ask them, if your life was in, was in danger, you were, your life was, you know, under threat, would, would you have the courage to testify to Jesus, you know, in the courtyard of the high priest? I would actually say the majority of the Christians I've met would say no. I, I wouldn't. I, I would not have that courage. Um, maybe it has to do with our little type of Christianity, the, the circles that we run in, but I think we focus a lot on our failures as Christians. We talk a lot about our sins, and we got a lot of sins to actually talk about, but we really focus on, oh, I, I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't, and you, I don't, I just, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And, and we think, you know, I'm not sufficient witness because like, oh, if you knew all these things about me, and that's what we focus on. To which I would say, like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. <laughs> because more than likely, Jesus has changed your life in ways that you may not at present see, but the rest of us can see really. Um, and the fact that you think that you don't have the courage to stand in the moment of trial, well, like, that means that at least you're humble and self-aware enough to realize that. It also, it also means that you wish you would. You have the desire to. You at least have the desire to stand with Jesus, like, no matter the cost. And that motivation and desire, that didn't come from you. It came from him. You know, the apostles were supposed to speak from their own personal experience. And I think we can be perfectly honest when we bear witness. And we can give our testimony in this way. Like, we can say there are significant ways that Jesus has transformed my life, my motivations, my desires. Like, I want to forgive my enemies now. I want to serve the poor. I want to care for the refugee and the marginalized. I want to do all those things and yet I recognize I'm totally inconsistent. And that's okay. Like, like, what we are calling people to is not a, look what a great Christian I am. You can be too. That's not, that is not our message. It's not our message at all. Our message is like, we're a mess, but we found grace. You know, because Christianity is a religion of grace, not, not works, not, not efforts. Yeah, and when we're inviting someone into the life and the way of Jesus, we're simply saying, I'm a person who has found grace and mercy, who's progressively becoming the person God wants me to be. And man, it is a slow process. I wish it would go faster. But I know that 
I'm not the person I would have been if Jesus hadn't found me. Like, that's what you can say, because that's true. Second um, hesitation we have in, in terms of bearing witness might be another one that we're not very comfortable admitting. Like, I'm not sure that Christianity has been or is a force of good in the world. And we can think of, you know, the, the Crusades and the Inquisitions, and we think of slavery, and we think of a lot of, a lot of ugly and horrible things that have been done in the name of Christ um, that we're ashamed for. I, I, I will admit that I spend too much time on Twitter. That's my social media uh, platform of choice, and I'm going to try to cut back in 2023. But right after, I think, Roe, uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, you know, you saw a lot of chatter on Twitter. And one of them that stood out to me was just the number of people who basically said, yeah, you Christians, like, you don't care for unwanted children. You don't care for single mothers. And um, I, I'm all for honest critiques of the church. And there's, there's plenty to critique of the church. But like to that stuff, I really wanted to say, like, really? Do you, do you really not? Do you know any Christians? <laughs> I mean, do you know anybody that is a real Christian? Because like David Platt's church in Birmingham, Alabama, like they, that church almost single-handedly uh, cleaned out the foster care system in their county. Like, who do you think are the majority of foster parents in our <clears throat> in our country? Um, or refu- refugee resettlement organizations. About like two thirds of the refugee resettlement organizations in the world are are faith based. Or you know, the hospital. Like, do you know that Christianity? We we founded the hospital. We invented the idea of a hospital. If you look at the number of beds in your city that are at a faith-based hospital, like, it's overwhelming. Um, I mean, Anne, you, you work as a chaplain at one of those. You know, hungry kids, who's feeding them? Um, they're fed by a summer food program, program that's largely administered by a government via partnerships with churches and faith-based institutions. Um, 80% of the food banks in the United States are faith-based. Like, I am all for responsible, honest, hard-hitting critiques of Christianity. And yes, the f- church has fallen short. But, like, don't be, clu- don't be blinded to the fact that there's a lot of good that the church has done and is doing today. I mean, honestly, part of it is it's... It's just a, it's just, I think, a lack of understanding, you know, because we are in these echo chambers of Fox News and MSNBC, and we associate people with this and that, and, like, there, it's not true, <laughs> you know? I think one of the things we can say to our, our friends who are secular in this world is, is to say, I know that you believe in human rights. I know that you believe in the equal dignity of every person. I know that you believe in the value of the poor and the weak. I know that you believe in caring and advocating for all. Where do these views come from? They didn't come from the Greeks. It didn't come from the Romans. It didn't come from the East. Um, You know, this all came out of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And like what I think happens is if you believe the world exists by chance and you're just here only through a process of survival of the fittest with no moral absolutes, then life is just about getting power. And none of this actually makes sense in that kind of mindset. (laughs) 
Because life is just about getting power, and, and it's the strong who eat the weak. But, like, this is the way to live if all the things Jesus taught were actually true. Yeah, and these central values and priorities that, thankfully, many in our society believe in today, they actually come from the fruit, the, the tree of Christianity. What, what I fear— and I'm not the first person to say this, is what is happening is people, like, they go to the fruit tree, and they take the fruit off, and they say, I like this fruit, and they pull it off the tree, but when you take it off the tree, you have taken it away from all the nourishment that gave life, that gave life to the fruit. And what's going to end up happening, if Christianity dies in America, largely, is can we go back to that previous slide? If Christianity dies in America, what will eventually happen is I think all those things will eventually die too because this is nourished um, through the teachings of Jesus and in a Judeo-Christian worldview. Um, there's so much more I could say about that, but I just think we have the opportunity to continue that, uh, to care for the poor, to advocate for all. Well, in conclusion, <clears throat> I didn't feel good about this sermon coming into it because I knew that I didn't have a very clear structure and I don't know if it's been all that intelligible. Um, if church was a production and, and preaching was a performance, I probably shouldn't tell you that. But what we are trying to do is create a family. And, you know, you tell things like that to your family. If you cooked a meal and you put some bread in the oven and you're afraid that you overdid the bread, then you would tell them, well, this might be a little dry and... And this sermon kind of feels that same way. But what I hope, what I hope you, you'll remember is this. God is not asking you to give a well-rehearsed speech. Like, that is not bearing witness to Jesus. And there's not a lot of beauty in that. And nobody, nobody wants to be sold anything. Like, I don't even like to go into a store where I know there's something I want to buy and somebody try to sell me the thing that I, I want to buy. Nobody wants that. But everybody, everybody needs love. And love is the thing that is most missing in the world. And love is the only thing that will begin to turn things and build social trust again. You know, you may feel like you're inadequate to bear witness to Jesus. I certainly do too. But the story of Acts, and this is an encouragement, the story of Acts is a story of how a small group of people who were not particularly gifted, who were not particularly effervescent, who nevertheless were used by Jesus to completely transform um, the world of their day. I mean, the Roman Empire, within a few hundred years, um, knew about Jesus, and it was completely transformed. The story of Acts is not the story of the Acts of the Apostles. It's the continuing Acts of Jesus through his people. And the same Holy Spirit of love that was given to them is given to you and me. It means that Christ is moving, and he's moving in and through us. And my hope is that we go through the book of Acts. It will ignite in us a desire to see some of the wonderful things described in the book also take place in the lives of our neighbors. Amen.